0: If you would turn in your Bible to John chapter one, John's Gospel, chapter one. so you don't get nervous and think we're going back to first, John. Because we could. I mean, it's a good option. Well, it's been long thought that uh, based on the testimony of and however you want to pronounce this, somebody's going to come tell me I pronounced it wrong, Irenaeus, Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, um, who was discipled under Polycarp, Polycarp discipled under John, New John, understood that this, it's documented in their writings, understood that this gospel was written when John was an old man, thought to have been written about 55 years after... The resurrection. Of course, that's disputed. Not inspired truth, but pretty credible. And we have to think about who John is as we come to his gospel. We have to think of all that he witnessed in seeing Christ's transfiguration. He has, at this point in his life, walked the long road of growing as a faithful apostle. But I think if he were here this morning, he would emphasize more than his apostleship. Being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has seen the church, as we saw in 1 John, rocked by false teachers. I want to, the crowd, and there are some in, this, in the church uh, that really believe this, that say theology doesn't matter. I can't wait till we get to heaven. And John is there, and just like, just say it to him, just, just one time, see how that goes for you. Uh, He has seen the devastation of false teachers. He's seen people who have been impacted by that, in uncertainty about their faith, people leaving the church that departed from among us because they were not of us. He's seen people hurt. Most importantly, in false teaching, he saw the character of God attacked. Now, if we turn quickly to John chapter 20, we will see... The stated purpose of his book in verses 30 and 31. Many of you will remember it. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his, the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John writes in his later years a gospel that we might believe. So we see his stated purpose, but we also have to level with the reality of the providential way in which this letter has impacted the world. I think one of the ways that it's impacted the world and it's glorious is that it has frustrated liberal theologians in our own day. And we'll see why in a moment. You can't come to John and do all of the liberal nonsense that liberals do. It just doesn't work here. The denying of the deity of Christ and the miracles and all of those kinds of things. There are those in the liberal camp that would accuse John. This is absolutely absurd. They would accuse John, because they don't like his book because it refutes their teaching, that he is, just a, he is a wooden theologian. and He's writing this Gospel as just a heady, Theologian, and he's missed really the, the point of the Gospel. But here, what we will learn is that in light of all that God has done, John writes to convey not just a wooden theology, but life-changing truth about the most magnificent life ever lived. And we have to remember that Christ's inner circle was comprised of James and Peter, and here our beloved Apostle John. And he's conveying not merely from his head, although that's part of it, but also from his heart. I was asked in this past week, why is it that we're headed to John next? And I don't remember standing here this morning what reason I gave at that moment. But I can tell you the more that I've had time to think about that question and standing here with you this morning. I I know it's because I have grown to love John. Not just his letter, but the man, who he is, finding John to be this man of deep affection. He's not a controversialist in the sense of, and there are many of these even in the reform camp, that they just want to pick a fight just to pick fight. They want to come to a doctrine and they want to build a camp there and they want to divide the church over that very thing and John is willing to divide over truth that's been delivered by the Spirit of God to him, but John is much more than that. He's a man of deep and great affection. He thinks and he loves deeply. He's genuine in all that he does and so why wouldn't we come here? And part of what we learn too throughout the Gospels, the reason that you begin... I don't know about your heroes in the faith, but my heroes, some of the greatest help to me as a sinner, is seeing that they're sinners too. I'm not helped by men that don't understand what it is to be a sinner. John is a man who understood what it is to be a sinner. In Mark chapter 9, we find this. John said to him, Teacher... Speaking to Jesus, "'We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us.' And Jesus said, "'Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me.'" For the one who is, a, is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Yet John had in this moment had this elitist attitude. These people aren't, they're not part of this inner circle, Jesus. And so we should push them to the peripheral. Jesus had to correct him. In Luke chapter 9, we find this narrative. When the days, I, I love this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's Jesus. And he sent his messengers ahead of him, who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because, of his, because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when His disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do You want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? A little vengeful there, isn't He? But He turned and rebuked them and they went to another village. Now this is the best. If you don't think there's humor in the Bible, you need to read it more often. Because in Mark chapter 3, we find what Jesus had begun to refer to them as John the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James, to whom the name had been given sons of thunder. Isn't that great? Here here they are. Jesus, do you want us to call down fire on them? And he calls them, all right, boys, sons of thunder. Calm down. He had to be softened. In the gospel as well, and that gives me, as a sinful man, much hope. Here, John is on the other side of so much of this. Still sinful to be sure, but much more sanctified and clear headed. By this time, he's been arrested for preaching the gospel. He's had to learn what it means to suffer for the name of Christ. He has come a long way. I think better stated, we could understand that in God's providence, Jesus has brought John a long way. And so here he writes to us lovingly, clearly, and boldly for the glory of God that having believed, we might believe. Would you stand and hear the words of God? through this precious apostle. John writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man, there was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came to bear witness, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. This is God's Word to us today. Beloved, would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence today so thankful for the truth that You have bestowed upon us through our beloved Apostle. we pray, Father, that You would inscribe it on all of our hearts that we would not leave these doors this morning without rejoicing in the truth that is communicated here just in this first verse. Father, we thank You for our salvation and we thank You that You've not left us to our own devices, but that You have promised not only to justify us, but to sanctify us and one day to bring us into glory. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. Now here again, we have the older, wiser, loving apostle writing his... Gospel, This is one of four in the Bible. And these Gospels tell of Jesus' life and work. They are the foundation of Christian life and doctrine. They are the building blocks of the church. The, The word Gospel is in fact attached to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because Jesus is the one who uses the word time and time again to describe His work as good news Uh, the early church saw the good news and they attached the word gospel to these works what's interesting about them if you've read through the gospels and if you've never done that I highly encourage you to if you come to the gospels you'll realize that they're not written in the same way and some people use that reality as a reason to try to undermine the veracity of the Gospels because they're not all identical. And if we're not careful, we can start to think that maybe there's some form of error in the reporting of what any one of the Gospel authors write. But beloved, we we stand on the doctrine of inerrancy. And not just foolishly, but we, 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 we reckon and wrestle with the fact that In inspiration, God not only intended the words here, but He used means in the different men and the perspectives they had in writing. If if we think for a moment about narrative, eyewitness accounts of something happened, one of the first things to, to, to teach a new investigator in law enforcement or other kinds of investigation even, you will teach the interrogator to separate the witnesses. Well, why do you do that? Because you don't want their stories to, to start you don't want them to start borrowing from each other's stories necessarily. And what you find when you have different people testifying to the same event is some of the details are going to look a little different and why? Because they have different perspective. They they have a different Angle. If we think maybe instead of in terms of narrative, in light of the history and, and the job of a historian, historians have a fascinating job, don't they? They get to synthesize a lot of information about what has happened over uh, the, the course of human history, and they get to speak to that historical perspective for their own reason and toward their own end. Uh, they get to, I mean, if you think about it, World War II... Um, a historian might put together a compilation of all of the generals who fought in a particular battle, uh, maybe in the, in the Pacific or something like that, or, or, or whatever the case may be, each one of those generals is going to have a different angle on the battle. There are different details on the ground that they're dealing with. And individually, each one of those generals has a different Task, a different assignment, different orders. Of course, the end game is that they win the battle. They win the war. But they have different aims. Maybe that helps a little bit, but we do need to reckon with the fact that this is not an investigation. This is not mere secular history. This is the Word of God. And so what we need to see here is how the Spirit again, uses the author and their personality to bring about the reality of what is written here. Somebody might ask the question, well, why didn't God just give us... Why didn't He, Sarah, just write one Gospel? Just get it over with. Well, there's an answer to that. Do you know why? Because we need all four. Because He is wise and omnipotent. And we are not. Because there are different angles of questions that need to be asked. You know, we got to get going here. But there are some questions that are asked of the Bible that the Bible just patently doesn't answer. And that should give us a clue. If God has not answered it, then it's not necessarily the question that we need to have answered. Now, maybe it's something we hold on to, we wrestle with all throughout our lives. That's fine. But God has answered every question that is necessary for faith and honoring the Lord in all of our lives. He has dealt with those things. So we, we have four distinct Gospels here because we need them. And reading them makes that clear. The, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic Gospels. Sin means to see, optic together. That is, those three, uh, those three Gospels kind of carry with them a same tenor of Perspective. And some liberal theologians have used that to say, well, you see, those first three Gospels, they kind of head in the same direction, but John, John is distinct. John is different, so let's just get a, get rid of it altogether. There's a real reason why they want to do that, and we'll see that today. Uh, they, they want to get rid of it because they have their own agenda. It's interesting to see how Ma- Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have different they start differently. Mark, excuse me. Matthew and Luke begin just before the birth of Jesus. Mark begins with the public ministry of Jesus. Mark is the the frantic friend. Have you ever I, indulge me here a little bit? I was a security director at one point in my life, um, and. Inevitably, out of 10 different security guys when an incident, whatever it was, happened, there was always one out of the group that was a little bit more wound tight than anyone else. And he was always the one to show up at my front door just beating the door down because he wanted to make the report. And generally speaking, that guy was always the most succinct because he had something to say and wanted to get it out and move on. That's our brother Mark. He's the most concise. He's in, an, in a hurry. He uses the word, if you read Mark, he uses the word immediately, over and over, and immediately this happened. It's almost as if you read it like he's out of breath. Like he is just dumping stuff on us. Luke is more of my man. He shows up and he's going to take his sweet time. He's going to give us a long sequential gospel. An explanation that we might have, an, he says, an orderly account, Matthew is given that we might see that Jesus fulfills much of the Old Testament prophecy. But John, John is different. As we've already seen in his letter, John is one who writes poetically, beautifully from the heart. He He'll come to a topic and he'll just kind of spin there. He'll lean into an issue and he'll move on proving it time and time again. And what we find ultimately in John is a very clear combination of two things. Gospel, that is who Jesus is, what he did, and what he says. So there is gospel in John's gospel, you don't say. But then the second leg is theology. Now, all of the Gospels have theology in them. They get to theology. They move in the direction of teaching us a theological perspective. But John, he begins with theology. John is the unapologetic apologist. He is here to give us an argument, a thesis, and look at Verse 1 with me this morning, and we find his thesis in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's his argument. All five verses, really, are his thesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, excuse me, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning, all things were made through Him, and without Him, was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Isn't it interesting how God makes us all different and uses those personalities for His glory? That's what we learn in four different gospel Gospels. It's interesting also to look at the way in which John handles his bringing theology to us. Many people, when they write, when they, when they make an argument, when they have an apologetic reasoning, they'll start out by trying to grab your attention over here and they'll lead you through arguments and then very, at the very end of their, their, their work, they'll spike the ball. They'll kind of leave you with that, Oh, okay, I'll remember that. John John doesn't necessarily work that way. And it's one of the reasons I've learned to love John. I have friends that accuse me, and y'all will probably agree with this particular brother, and I may have shared this with you before, but I have one friend in particular that accuses me all the time. I say, J- Jay, when you preach, you just, like to, you just like to throw grenades. You know, you pull the pin, you lob the grenade, and then you just, there it is. Maybe true. Now, I want to make clear before i move on i'm not john not even close but this propensity is something that john has in his own writing as well because it's as if john what's kind of like this paul paul's standing here this morning at the podium and this is the way he begins his his work 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be spirits together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's he's giving this salutation. I understand a little bit different that this is genre, but he's giving this flowery introduction. And while, while Paul is doing that, the, the Apostle John just kind of walks out, walks up onto the stage, and he just kind of looks over like... Okay, that's one way to do it, but instead he says, hey guys, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Boom! I mean, he just levels with us. That's the truth you need to know. Now let me explain it to you. I mean, that, that's the kind of move that when you grow up in mid-Missouri in the sticks as a cultured redneck, when someone does that kind of a thing in a gathering, everyone sets back and goes, get it, son. Get after it. That's, that's what John is doing here. He is laying out a, 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 a thesis here that is supposed to enrapture us and bring us through the rest of His work. There's no good morning... There's just this grenade of truth. I think it's interesting. I was reading Augustine's sermons on John, and Augustine has this really flowery way uh, as, as well of describing John. He describes him as this grand mountain. And he is the mountain that if we look to as he follows Jesus, then we are helped along in our own faith. And, and Augustine warns, don't follow those substitute mountains that have rocky uh, uh, outcroppings right along the waterline that as you start to follow them, you'll shipwreck your faith. And, 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 and so he goes on poetically just to describe John as this beautiful, majestic apostle. And as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, mm. now he's more like Rambo. Just boom! In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now we need to think about the importance of this. How He begins His Gospel. If we look at Matthew, Matthew, Matthew's Gospel begins this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is a very Jewish book. Matthew here is pointing that Jesus is the son of David, the consolation of Israel. He is the Messiah. That's why he's writing. Mark begins... The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Quickly, he gets to the point. The son of God is here. Luke takes his long historical approach. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. John begins... In the beginning, do you see the difference? Do you see that John begins with truth. He begins with theology. He, he is going to work out the gospel, but he works out the gospel front-loaded with deep theology. And this this, important, uh, this statement, rather, in verse one, is so important. What, what, what beloved, do you hear when you hear in the beginning? What do you think of? We think of Genesis, right? That's the natural bent to come to John. Chapter 1, verse 1, here in the beginning and go, oh, in the beginning. I know that beginning. You don't know that beginning. You see, what I think John is doing is he's leveling here. My brother is leveling a, 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 a grenade at us that if we're not careful, we'll move on and we'll miss what he's saying. Because our minds are so what well, maybe not ours mine is so bent to just grab onto rote truth and assume something and, and really move on without thinking about it again most of us come to in the beginning and we hear we think of the creative work of god in genesis 1 and the answer is no but we're going to get there it's not the beginning that he's talking about he's talking about the beginning before the beginning of creation I'm going to use the word beginning a lot. If you're a note taker, you're probably going to want to abbreviate it. So this is the beginning before the beginning. And it's so very important that we understand that this beginning is before the other beginning. Because if we, if we don't understand this beginning, we're going to get our theology gravely wrong. And in this way. to th- th- Turn with, with me to, this is getting exciting, y'all. And by my calculation, we're feeding you today, so we've shaved off 45 minutes of wait time at the restaurant. Get it, <laughs> I'm just, just kidding, I won't do that to you. Genesis chapter 1. Well, boy, they put a lot of preface and table of contents in this, don't they? In the beginning God created the heavens of the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness night. He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse. And on and on He says, and God made, and God made, and he keeps moving in that direction God said God said over and over and over there in the first chapter and if we are not careful and we conflate the in the beginning with that Genesis 1 beginning what we will think is that in some form or fashion Jesus came after the first beginning that, that there was this beginning and God put Adam and Eve into the garden to work and keep it, to bring glory, to worship Him with a crown of righteousness. All of these things that we've learned. And there was an oops. And so Jesus is a plan B. Well, some would argue that Israel's the plan B, then Jesus is the plan C. All of that is wrong. What, what Jesus is aiming at here is the reality that Jesus was in the beginning. The Bible never gives us reason to think of Jesus in the term, terms of being a plan B. Jesus has always been the plan from the foundation of the world. Pactus salutis. There, there has always been a redemptive plan in the triune Godhead to redeem fallen man and bring glory unto the triune God. The work of redemption has always been plan A. And people will ask, well, why didn't God just stop Adam and Eve from sinning in the garden? Because there was a plan of redemption before the foundation of the world was ever laid. Jesus is not a plan B. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the question is, why this language. Why this theological import? And I hope that as you move through with me John's Gospel, you'll see the importance of the import of why John is writing this way. And he's writing this way because in God's providence, God knows that we're going to have questions about who He is and how He relates to His redeemed people. Particularly, there's going to be, in church history, fights over the Trinity. And so John, here, before those fights, in the beginning before that, before those fights come up, in the beginning of the church, John writes this one sentence that fixes all of the misconceptions about the Trinitarian Godhead. And I hope that you'll see it as we move along. Now, some of you'll remember that the the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the Bible reveals a triune God. The Trinity is really just simply this, Now, I really struggle saying that because as soon as you say the Trinity is simply, I start to go, wait a minute. But I really do think this is a helpful way to think through what we mean when we use the word Trinity. It's not in the Bible, so what are we saying when we use an extra biblical word? This is called doing theology. We use words that aren't in the Bible to describe truths that are in the Bible so that we don't have to fully explain those truths and be like Luke. Really long-winded. So when we say Trinity we mean four statements. And to be a Christian, we must hold on to all four of these statements as true and as true all at one time. And if any one of these four statements we neglect as true, we've lost the doctrine of the Trinity altogether. Are you ready for the four statements? One, God is one. Two, the Father is God. Three, the Son is God. Four, the Spirit is God. And when we use the word Trinity, we are merely asserting those four realities. God is one, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. That is Trinitarian theology in a nutshell. Super simple, right? I mean, it's easy to state in, in, a, in four statements like that. But apparently it's not easy to hold on to because the church has had to fight for this reality continually. And here in the first sentence, we have really three of those four realities. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is the reality that that God is one, that the Father is God there, and Jesus is God. And by the end of... John's Gospel, we will see the, all four of these things working out in unison. In the beginning was the Word. Now that's an interesting logos. In the beginning was logos. In the beginning was the Word. Now what does that mean? What is intended to be conveyed here? The, the, the idea of the Word, Word is that of logic or idea or principle or language or meaning. At Lightfoot, I think, really helpfully in a brief excursus, helps us to come to grips with the meaning of the word word, the meaning of the Greek word logos, logos however you want to pronounce it. And his explanation is that that word really is... Conveying two things. One, wisdom, an active substantial providence, God's working things out in the universe, his wisdom, and two, his revelation. So, in the beginning, and we could fill in, there was the logic, there was the principle, there was the wisdom, there was the language, there was the meaning, there was the revelation. And that was with God, and the word Logos was God. Logos was the way to convey that reality that Jesus is the unifying principle of the universe. He is in Platonic philosophy, the the secret of the universe that the, the philosophers were trying to figure out. He is the explanation, the Logos, the Word, the wisdom, the revelation of the entire cosmos. He is the explanation of why the world is as it is. And so here, he's communicating to us the clarifying reality of the trinity of who Jesus is as part of the trinity and it's really helpful again that we'll get to the spirit also by the end of John's gospel but he drops this bomb of pointing to Christ as a member of the trinity pre-existent in the beginning with the father and this is so important because this is the very uh gospel that was used so um much at the Council of Nicaea in 325. that You'll remember, I'll try and make this quick, but the, here is the way that God... It, do any of you ever just get frustrated there are problems in life? You just want to be able to hit the Staples easy button and move on with life? We're built that way. It's called laziness. God is better than we are. Knows that we're weak that way. So the way that He works out truth in the church is he allows for heretics to come in amongst the saints so that the saints will have to face the truth and clarify what they believe. That very thing happened at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Somebody recently said, if you, if you follow theological statements, you'll find that they're often named after the hotel where the people met. And so apparently this was the Hilton of Nicaea in 325. There were no Hiltons. Just to... Be clear. Don't tell your friends that the Council of Nicaea happened at the Hilton. <clears throat> but there was the, the, the heretic Arius, and he had some followers. And Arius in 325 was not following the logos, the wisdom and revelation of God. He was following his own wisdom and revelation, his own logic, his own view. And so what he did was he asserted that there was a time when the Son was not. And therefore, because there was a time that the Son was not, in the beginning, before the beginning, there was a time that the Son was not. That's, that's Arius, okay? And so he says there had to have been a time when God created the Son. And ultimately, what we need to understand simply is this, that Arius was, was, was emphatically trying to guard the primacy of the Father. And so he argued that the Father created the Son. That we need to be very careful not to say something that the Bible doesn't say. And Arius was following his own logic saying something the Bible doesn't say. And all he had to do was understand John chapter 1 verse 1. What the Bible teaches is that yes, the Son proceeds from the Father. He is begotten of the Father, but that he was not created by the Father. God creates the world but he does not create the word. He doesn't create the logos. He doesn't create Christ. He doesn't generate he, he, he doesn't functionally create the son. The the word here ultimately speaks to the reality that the Son is generated inside of the Godhead. That there was never a time when the Son was not. There never was a time when the Father was not. There never was a time when the Spirit was not. All of these three beings were in the beginning. Before the, earth, before the world. In eternity. Past. The, 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 this Gospel then guards us from so much error. And it's interesting that I want you to hear the conclusion of that grand meeting at the Hilton of Nicaea. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but we'll get to the very last part. Listen to this statement. This is how the church began to formulate their understanding of pushing against the Arian heresy. He said, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. "...and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, very Son, excuse me, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made." We don't get those words. We do not get the Athanasian Creed without these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's what John is doing here. He is leading out. He is saying that in the beginning of all beginnings, there was Christ, there was the Father, and He will show us that there was the Spirit. In the beginning of beginnings, there was the Word. When we speak of the co-eternality of the triune God, we are leaning eminently on these words. It's interesting how much we get from just a few Greek words. And I would geek on Greek, but we don't have time. Here, John doesn't just say that Jesus was on good terms with God in the beginning. He doesn't say that that Jesus pleased God at the beginning of time. He doesn't say that Jesus was right with God. No, in the beginning of beginnings, Jesus was God. He was plan A, period, hard stop. And friends, how many people who would claim to be theologians, come into the church and they, just like Arius, they want to defend God from something they don't understand. Our greatest need in the church today isn't to defend God, it's to submit to what He has revealed of Himself. You see, what really happens with John's Gospel is this, and I think it's fantastic. frustrates so many eggheads. You have two options with John. Because he's not, he's not Paul. He's not showing up trying to give you the long salutations there. He's showing up and he is leveling deep theology. Now you have two things you can do with John. You can either submit to the gospel that he delivers to you, or you can reject him entirely. There's no middle ground. And that is the gift of this gospel. It is the safeguarding. Either you buy what he's telling you about the triune God, that God always was, excuse me, that God is one, that the Father is God, that the Son is God, and that the Spirit is God. You either buy that or you're going to move in a direction that is something other than orthodox Christianity. You see, this, is, this Jesus is not the modern liberal Jesus. Jesus, they say, was a good teacher. Liberals would tell you this morning, Dallas, that if you would just listen to all the moral things that Jesus did and emulate them, we could bring salvation to this world. Doesn't that bring you to despair to think about that? I can't even make it, I don't think, to my office by 8 a.m. with fulfilling any substantive thing in that kind of thought. They say that Jesus was a Jesus without miracles. What happened was was really we we superimposed those miracles as kind of folklore onto Christ. that, That Jesus really, His divinity isn't really the important thing. Again, because He is a mere moral exemplar. And the accusation for several hundred years now has been the early church took Jesus and invented Christ. They took a man named Jesus... And they created a God. Fallen humanity in that vein of thought has done the very... They they misunderstand the reality that God has done the exact opposite. He was God. He became a man. Jesus is the wrath-bearing, miracle-working, sin-forgiving, repentance-granting, glory-giving Savior of the world. That is John's Jesus. And you can either take that Jesus or you can take a hike. Those are your options. You can either fall at the feet of the triune God and you can worship Him in spirit and in truth or you can go the way of all the earth. John wants to be that fork in the road for all of humanity. He begins with clear theology, triune theology, that we might either worship or move along our way. Isn't it interesting how this book, John says, the purpose is that you might believe. And if you were to trace through, let's just not even go into deep church history, let's just our Christian lives. How many funerals have you been to where John is the book that the preacher makes a beeline to. Because there's comfort there that we can trust that we belong to Jesus and we have life everlasting in His name. How many times have you read a book and there's a theological quandary and somehow John gets brought into it? And here's the beauty of John's theology. There are some theological questions that will make your brain just... John's theology is so intimately wed with the declaration of the beauty of the gospel and what Christ has done. Uh, he, he brings about the truth in such a wonderful way. Uh, for those of us who are engaged in evangelism, and that should be all of us, uh, this is the book that we start with, isn't it? We, we ask our friends, go read this gospel. How many people have come to faith leaning into this? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I think what we need to move on from here in understanding that there is a Trinitarian defense is that however... This verse is pointing to the other beginning. So this is the beginning before the beginning, but it's pointing to the beginning that we most often think about in biblical terms in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. That in the beginning. In verses 2 and 3, he gets to that beginning. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything uh, made that was made. So verse 1 is the beginning of beginnings, and verses 2 and 3 are the beginning clear? Jesus was with the Father in the beginning. Nothing was made without Him. And someone may say, well, I've read Genesis chapter 1, preacher, and I don't remember ever reading Jesus in Genesis chapter 1. Well, I would ask you to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and ask yourself this question, how was the world made? Over and over and over, and God said, and God said, and God said. And so we come to Genesis chapter 1, and we see, and God said, and God said, and God said, over and over. And we have a clearer understanding of what John is telling us here. That in that verbal act of creation, God spoke ex nihilo. That means out of nothing. He spoke words, and those words materialized into everything that is. And so what was that word? Well, it was our Savior. Read with me again. Thinking with that reality and God said and God said in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Now to further clarify Paul is going to put a fine point on this reality in Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. And I'm glad that you asked so we'll read that and be done. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. That was the beginning before the beginning. And in Him... All things hold together, and He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. In the beginning, before the beginning, there was the Word there was christ the son is god the father is god the spirit is god god is one all preexistent and there was the plan of redemption and now christ as john has written has come into the world he has begun he has, he has lived a perfect life he has died in the place of all of those that the father would give him died, buried, raised on the third day, ascended to the right hand of His Father, now giving gifts to the apostles for the edification of the body. He's building His church. And there He was in the beginning. The principal reality, the wisdom and revelation of God, the point of all of creation in the beginning was the Word may we worship in light of the, of the one who is the beginning of all things would you pray with me father we come into your presence today so humbled by this text so humbled by the gentle loving Kind and yet bold Apostle that You've given us in these pages. That He would declare truth without shrinking. That we would rest in the reality of the Trinity. And Father, that we would worship You in spirit and in truth, not because of who we are, but because of what You have done in our lives. Father, would You grant us mercy in these days ahead to understand with greater accuracy and clarity the meaning of these words. If there's one here today that has never repented of their sin and turned to Christ, Father, would You do what only You could do and create their heart afresh and anew, regenerate them, bring them to saving faith. Father, for those of us who are in Christ, might we glory in the reality that before the foundation of the world, You planned our redemption and in our own day are carrying it out. Father, might we worship You in spirit and in truth for all that You are and all that You've done. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you would stand, we'll sing all glory be to Christ.